0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's over here, and this is Stuff You Should Know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm great. I'm uh, have not been poisoned. Yet I have no need to get on the phone and call an expert
1: at this point.
0: Luckily, my daughter has never been poisoned, although that's a big concern for parents.
1: Yeah, no joke here.
0: No, not joking. Nothing funny <laughs> about poisoned children, unless you're talking about little young Brett Michaels. He was a he was a stitch in a cut up.
1: What? Oh, 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 oh! Wow, you should uh, see just... little
0: Ricky Rocket.
1: <laughs> I was confused. Um tickled then, and then disappointed in myself all within like half of a second.
0: Oh, I thought you were gonna say disappointed in the joke, because that's the fourth stage no, of recovery.
1: <laughs> I thought it was great. Maybe like a month from now I'll be like, you
0: know, that joke that about
1: poison wasn't that great. Yeah. But who knows, maybe I'll also be laughing about it years later. For example, um I watched UHF the other day for okay. the first time in a little while. Still haven't seen it? And just today, out of the blue, apropos of nothing, I cracked myself up thinking about one of the jokes. Which one? So uh, there's a segment about Conan the Librarian. Somebody asks for a book on astronomy, and Conan grabs the guy and lifts him up by his shirt, and he goes, Don't you know the Dewey Decimal (laughs) System? Was it Arnold? Was he in it? It was a really good approximation okay. of Arnold. For a second, I thought it was Bruce Campbell, and I actually looked on the credits, and it's not. But um, it, it looks exactly like Bruce Campbell doing Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh,
0: you know what I watched the other day for the, I think, first time ever? Did we talk about this? Pumping Iron? Uh, yeah, I've never watched it. I think we might have already spoken about this, though. I did. On the show, even. Within weeks.
1: Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> no, no, no. Definitely not within weeks. No. No, unless like my brain is sloshing around in my skull.
0: Probably has. Everyone out there is going, Yes, Josh, you mentioned it three episodes ago and you're both stupid.
1: It rings a bell that you did mention it, but
0: it was not weeks ago.
1: I think you're confusing your other podcast, Movie Crush.
0: I don't think so. Because one of them is good and one of them is just cutting up.
1: But you're talking about a movie and it couldn't possibly have been mentioned on the movie podcast, is what your position is.
0: Maybe it was. Okay. But Movie Crush is the good podcast.
1: Oh. (laughs) Well, I I resubmit my you're crazy.
0: Uh, (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I just poisoned you.
1: Yeah. And a million listeners.
0: So maybe we should just get going on this. I thought this was really interesting.
1: I think we should take an ad break. No. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it was interesting, and it wasn't, like, based on anything, but... Curiosity, like I, I realized that I had no idea how poison control centers worked. Like, like you, I have never had occasion to call one. Luckily, um, but they're there, and it's kind of like a really great thing that they're there and that they are um, there to keep scared parents from, you know, freaking out because their kid ate something weird or their dog ate something weird or, you know, they ate something weird. Um, and to say, basically say, like, no, it, you need to get to a hospital. And not only that, I'm going to help you throughout this process of going to the hospital and staying at the hospital. Because poison control centers are, like, the most hands-on yeah. remote medical discipline there is.
0: Yeah. And if it was 100 and change years ago, you'd be lucky if whatever you accidentally drank in your house even has ingredients listed on it. And if it did have ingredients... You'd be lucky if they were accurate or truthful mm-hmm. because no one cared and you wouldn't be able to call anyone to help. And if you went to your local, you know, uh, community doctor, good luck if they're even available 110 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if they were, they'd probably be like, geez, I don't really know what to do except maybe try and make you vomit.
1: Yeah. Nothing more than a two-bit bumpkin was what you had for a doctor back then. You Drink his sody pop. Yeah, exactly. The sassafras. (laughs) That'll do Um, it. And and so you might say, well, like, what does 100 years ago matter? Why not further back? That's a really good question. And the answer to that is that poison control is a fairly recent invention, not because people just thought of it, but because we didn't really need it before because we didn't really have poisons around us prior to about the Industrial Revolution. Like, the closest thing you had to poison was a snake that made its way into your house. You definitely didn't open your your cabinet beneath the sink, probably because you didn't have a sink. But also, even if you had a sink, you didn't have, like, household chemicals at your disposal until industrialization came around.
0: Yeah, I mean, before that, there might have been, you know, you could extract some poison-type things from plants and maybe sure. got something at a... At a traveling kind of snake oil situation, but yeah. it wasn't like they were on the general store shelves all over the country, and then later stores, like you said, until the industrial revolution, when we said, "Hey, it turns out that we can use chemicals, uh, and they they can be very handy. Uh, they mm-hmm. are dangerous, but I mean, who would who would drink a bottle of floor cleaner? People know better than that, right? We don't have to tell them that, do we?" <laughs> You're right, exactly. Um, They said, actually, yes, we totally
1: do. And I saw a comparison on a poison website <clears throat> that still today people apparently get poisoned, including adults, from accidentally drinking things that they think are other safer things. And they had bottles of stuff next to bottles of other, like, food. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, that, that really actually does bear a passing resemblance. Like, pine saw looks a lot like apple juice when you put it next to a bottle of apple juice. Yeah. And there's a brand of apple juice that looks roughly like the Pine Salt label.
0: Yeah. Um, I see like – comment, It's not a – It's not anything you could drink. Um, the most you would do is probably embarrass yourself. But I see things that look like toothpaste a lot <laughs> that you would not want to put on a toothbrush and put in your mouth.
1: What are you hanging around with that looks like toothpaste that you wouldn't want to brush your teeth with?
0: Well, I mean, there's all sorts of, I mean. Like lubes? Are you lubing <laughs> it up? <laughs> no, like calamine and, you know, I, I feel like I've seen some other creams and things that okay. look, you know, because it's, a, it's a, obviously a good way to carry a toothpaste-like thing and is a little tube like that. But right, a lot of them look alike is my point.
1: I see. So, do you have to be like, don't brush your teeth with this? No. Reminder. No, Note no, no, no. to self.
0: I use a uh, children's toothpaste, so it has big dinosaurs on it.
1: I think it wasn't so much back in the day. Like now, today, there's like basically no excuse because we spent the last hundred years being um, inculcated into the idea that there are a lot of dangerous things in our everyday lives. Yeah. But, you know, back in the day, th- this was all brand new to people and they just didn't know. Um, sometimes manufacturers actually didn't know, and they found out the hard way. And because people were suffering from this, it was obvious that there was a need for people to say, okay, we need to start studying these things a little more. And a lot of the um, great, great meaning like really fantastic and triumphant government bureaucracies here in the United States arose from Protecting like everyday people from the stuff that they were eating as food or using as medicines, like things you're supposed to be able to trust, they couldn't trust back then. So, entire sub disciplines of the medical profession kind of developed to protect people from those things.
0: Yeah, it was mid to late 1800s when people started saying, Hey, this is a problem, this is an issue. I think a lot of journalists did great work early on to Mm -hmm. expose a lot of this stuff, a lot of these dangers. And say, you know, some of these medicines can be really dangerous. Uh, Then a guy came along named Dr. Harvey Wiley. He ran the Bureau of Chemistry, which preceded the FDA. And he had a group called the Poison Squad, who were these healthy young men who who would poison themselves. They would eat chemicals to see what happened. Because as you'll see, kind of throughout this whole episode, much of the work of poison control from the very beginning all the way up through today is just simply categorizing and listing out things that make people sick and exactly how they make them sick. It's like it's like a big database.
1: Right, and then in the best-case scenario, how to treat well, yeah, somebody who sure. accidentally ingests that thing too, you know? Yeah. But we talked about Wiley and the Poison Squad. We did an episode years ago um, called Does the FDA Protect Americans? Yeah. And we talked about them. And, like, hats off to them. But between the muckrakers and Dr. Wiley um, – not just government was kind of forced into action, but the public started to become educated about, you know, just how dangerous their everyday life was, where before they hadn't really realized it on any kind of collective level, you know?
0: Yeah, I think it was um, the—and I know we talked about the Pure Food and Drug Act, right? Didn't you just say that?
1: Not yet.
0: Okay, that was 1906. They also called it the Wiley Act after Harvey Wiley. Mm -hmm. And it basically said, hey— you got to start labeling stuff. You got to be really clear about what's in certain products, especially if it contains alcohol, heroin, caffeine, cannabis. You got to let people know what's in these products. And uh again with the media they were bringing it to light, and if you were a company at the time, it became a thing where like just from a PR standpoint, you needed to start doing this and be a little more transparent, otherwise you would get a bad name if a poisoning was in the newspaper and your product was, you know, kind of to blame.
1: Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, that's kind of what the um, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 was predicated on, the idea that a company would want to protect its image or right. its business and not suffer ruination from bad PR. But they found out um, in, oh, I guess the mid-1930s, that that just wasn't the case. Um, well, I think we should do a short stuff on this this episode. It's just nuts what happened. But the upshot is, is that a preparation of uh, sulfanilamide, uh, an antibiotic, was prepared using antifreeze. Mm-hmm. Um, to help and dissolve there was it, right. Yeah, and they're and to give it like a sweet flavor, raspberry flavor.
0: That sweet sweet antifreeze.
1: That's right. But the the upshot of the whole thing was that. There was no regulation that said you guys need to test this first. They can just market it. And they actually got them on a technicality, but 100 people died yeah. from this. And that really hastened the 1938 um, the law. I think it was an amendment to the Pure Food and Drug Act that basically said, okay, not only do you have to label stuff now when it has any kind of chemicals or weird ingredients, you also need to test these things first before you release them to the public. That was a huge, huge um, foundation that was laid to protect just people like you and me from the stuff that's in our, our kitchen or our bathroom, you know. And it's not like the, somebody said, okay, next up, poison control centers. Right. But that was kind of like the, the zeitgeist that was churning as poison control centers started to come along, you know, tangentially to that.
0: All right. So the groundwork is laid. Let's take a break. And we'll come back and get going with, in earnest, poison control centers.
1: I love these episodes, Chuck, where we spend a full third talking about not the thing.
0: No, nah, but this is all important. I know. <laughs> Be, take it easy on yourself.
1: I'm I'm trying. I'm still recovering from that, that haymaker you threw earlier.
0: <laughs> <About> movie crush? <crotch? laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, since uh, we don't do any kind of podcast promotion for our shows at our network... <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to promote uh, the Alan Ball Six Feet Under anniversary episode. If you yeah. were a fan of Six Feet Under, I'm really, really proud of this episode. And uh, go check it out. It's, out. it's out now. So you interviewed the
1: Alan Ball creator of yeah. Six Feet Under. I right don't my
0: basement shows. on my Zoom.
1: That's so awesome. <laughs> so great. Did you say sixth anniversary? It couldn't be sixth. No, 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 20th. 20th. Oh, okay. I thought you said sixth for some reason. Yeah, yeah that's really. And plus, I guess that'd be kind of a bizarre anniversary to celebrate now that I think about it
0: the 6th anniversary. <laughs> when does that come out? It's out. It's live.
1: That's great. Congratulations. Thanks, dude.
0: man. It was a good one. So, um all right, you were being unkind to my friend when I had to plug, make that plug. Who Dr. Chevalier Jackson?
1: No, you. Oh, oh my god.
0: <laughs> Emily and I always say that when we're beating ourselves up. We'll say, oh, "Hey, be, be nicer to bit. be nicer to my friend." <laughs> that is very sweet. All right. So uh, 20th century is is going strong. People are starting to understand uh, and, you know, they were making efforts to try and catalog some stuff. But it was really sort of all over the place in the early few decades. I think in the in the 20s, uh, lye uh, that you made soap with and some people still make soap with was mm-hmm. kind of one of the big poisoners of children. Because uh, depending on what form you had it in, it could look like milk or sugar. And there was a doctor named Doctor Chevalier Quixote Jackson, who was a laryngologist. That's got to be how you say it, right? Not a laryngologist.
1: I, I guess so. i never said it out loud. I've always said it in my head, but I've never noticed how I say it. So what? I think you. I think you said it.
0: I mean, laryngologists would be what you think, but laryngologist is sounds more correct, even though it sounds funny.
1: Laryngologist, yeah. It's got to be that. How maybe about we we'll just call them an ENT?
0: <laughs> maybe it's laryngologist.
1: Or a laryngolist.
0: <laughs> Laryn... No, you're missing a couple of letters there.
1: Laryngolist, laryngololist.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. It still Let's cracks me up. Let's just say that
1: word for the rest of the episode.
0: <laughs> it still cracks me up after 14 years when people, sweethearts, write in and say... uh, Hey, you know, I'm an expert if you want to help pronunciate, pronounce, pronunciating something.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Oh Hit Lord. me up. I'll help you pronunciate all all day long. Oh,
0: goodness. All right. And so, what's funny
1: <laughs> is it'll be like from a laryngeologist. I know. And we'll just never mention laryngeologists again. Yeah, so
0: hopefully. Unless it comes up a lot, like our new friend, uh Molly Bidnium. <laughs> yeah, Molly B. Molly B is all over. All right. So this laryngologist was having a lot of cases of kids coming in and swallowing lye wouldn't kill you, but it would tear up your esophagus so bad mm-hmm. that you might die because you can't eat, uh, which is just awful. So uh, Dr. Jackson said, we got to really do something about this lie problem and uh, really championed the federal caustic poison act of 1927, which basically kind of only covered, I don't know if it only covered lye, but it only covered. Caustic poisons.
1: Yeah, I, I, it was pretty narrow and pretty specific, and it basically just said you have to put a warning symbol on right. there now on those specific things. But it was a it was an early um, law related to the idea of household chemicals being dangerous to people and letting people know. Because up to that point, the the producers of lye were like, uh, "No, we have no interest in labeling our product as dangerous." You Yeah, sap. Why, why would
0: we tell people that?
1: In fact, a lot of them marketed the exact opposite. We're like safe on skin, gentle, right. you know, like a mountain rain, that kind of stuff. And it's like, no, it's it's lie. This is like drain cleaner, you know, or oven cleaner. It's like the worst of the worst. But that, that law got it passed. So it, that helped lay the groundwork as well. Um, and then in the 30s, there was a guy who came along named Dr. J. I mean, it's spelled arena. So maybe it's arena or arena, yeah, one of the two. And he was a, a pediatrician at Duke, and he basically said, "Look, the, this problem extends a lot more to beyond lie. Like, there's a lot of chemicals that are poisoning kids. I think he actually did write a thing about lie in particular. Um, but it, he was he was saying like, no, this is this is worth cataloging. And I think he started the process." He he started the whole cataloging poisons trend that became so huge in the thirties.
0: Yeah, he he wrote a book called Beyond the Lie Colon. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding.
1: (laughs) That that subtitle was terrible.
0: Uh so if you want to look at the (laughs) (laughs) who might be the father of the poison control center.
1: Yeah, this is the guy.
0: Not not quite as awesome as being like the godfather of soul or the (laughs) queen of soul. Sure. Or the father of hip-hop. Or father time. But if you're the father of the Poison Control Center, you've done a lot of good. And it was a pharmacist in Chicago named, uh, I'm going to say Dahlman, Louis Dahlman, with a okay. silent G on the front. Does that make
1: sense? I was going to do a shout-out to our Australian listeners and say his name is Louis
0: <laughs> Uh For all I know, it is Louis Gedahlman. But I'm going to say Louis Dahlman. And he was the first person to really start collecting this data. Uh, and he did it on index cards. Like I said, much of the early work and uh, still a lot of the work they do is categorizing and cataloging this stuff just because mm-hmm. y- you got to know what card to look up if someone calls in to say they've been poisoned. And right. this was through the 40s, and he established a hotline. Again, this was uh, only in the Chicago area, but you could for, um, I mean, 24 24- Seven, basically, call and get information call and assistance. Him. Yeah, oh no, he would answer the phone day or night.
1: Yep, he, he he basically said, "I'm starting this. I'm going to be, by God, I'm going to be known as the father of something. And if it's poison control centers, so be it."
0: He had his little recipe book cards, <laughs> yeah, literally, and would just sit there and thumb through them and read what he thought was going on. It's amazing.
1: He was very famous. His catchphrase was "Hold, please."
0: Right. <laughs> And then you could
1: hear him sorting through and be like, no, that's not no.
0: Uh Eventually, those made that's it to right microfiche. Thank goodness.
1: <laughs> right. So um, he was not just because he, he created these um, index cards and started taking calls 24 hours a day. That's not the only reason he was the father of the poison control center. He actually started founding with another guy, Dr. Edward Press, the first poison control centers that were beyond, like, you know, his bedroom at 3 in the morning. Right. He founded I think eleven of them to start, and then eventually they they created a a trend that would be followed later where they were consolidated into a single one, which it turns out as far as poison control centers is definitely way more efficient than yeah. having a bunch of different poison control centers
0: put a pin and in and they
1: that. they had like nurses, they had doctors working there, they had people who knew what they were talking about, and they um were creating like the first Database, the first generalized information about poisonings, about toxicology, like really helping establish this field from taking data from real-world examples that were the people who were calling in for help. So it was like a two-fold thing. They were helping the people. They they were helping the, the doctors who were helping their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were also gathering data to create kind of this this foundation for understanding the effects of, of toxic chemicals on the, the human body.
0: Yeah, and this was, I think, within five years of that Chicago system, there were 265 centers opened in the US, but again, still no sort of central database or national framework or even mm-hmm. certification process. Uh, they were doing a lot of good work, but these first um efforts were really different than today's in a couple of big ways. Uh one, I mean, the biggest one is that when you call now, you are the human that has just swallowed something calling. Back in the day. If you were poison, you called your doctor, then the doctor would call the Poison Control Center and get their advice from there. Mm-hmm. And I think 1961 is when these direct calls from the public started to be introduced, which was a big, big, super necessary change.
1: So, that I mean, that is a huge deal to, to- – to just go straight to the poison control center because before you had to go to your doctor and then they went to the poison control center. And apparently that's still the case in a lot of European countries. But in the United States, you can just call somebody who knows what they're talking about with poisons. And that is a really big um, effect that poison control centers have is they – Prevent unnecessary healthcare spending. Yeah. Because as we'll see, the vast majority of um, calls to poison control centers can be resolved, like, at the place it's happening. Whether it's work or whether it's at your house or something like that, you don't actually have to go to the hospital. So if you're not showing up to an emergency room or a doctor's office or something, that means that's time that somebody else who does need to be there can be, be having attention paid to them. And it's just less money. Spend on healthcare for you showing up. And I saw on some Massachusetts, Rhode Island poison control center website, they estimated that for every dollar invested into a poison control center, it saves $13 oh, wow. in healthcare spending and lost productivity. It's amazing. It really is. And that's a huge function that they play. You know, you think of like poison control centers as basically being like, oh, I just accidentally drank some antifreeze or something. Uh, and, uh, you know, I need to call and get some help, but there's, you know, these other roles that are easily overlooked that are really important as well that they, that they play that's kind of evolved over time.
0: Totally. Um, so I mentioned the two big changes over the years, uh, and one was that you call in and said, we're your doctor. The other big one was back then in the early days, it was almost entirely centered around pediatric poisoning. Uh, and you know, we have some stats we'll get to later. You can see why children are still the the most poisoned, um, mm-hmm. in the population just, you know, from accidents, but it's, uh, they just didn't have a lot of, um, data on adult poisoning back then. So it was really folk child focused yeah. and they could help with adult poisonings. It's not like they would hang up or anything like that, but it was, uh, kids getting their hands on poison was kind of the big, uh, big concern.
1: Yeah. So they're starting to develop in the 30s, 40s, 50s. And then um, an important person named uh, Leroy Edgar Burney, who was the Surgeon General of the United States in the late 50s, um, he got involved. He took an interest in the idea of poison control centers, started National Poison Awareness Week, I believe, and um, founded the National Clearinghouse for Poison Control Centers, which is it took that database idea that started out as index cards mm-hmm. that uh, Lewis Dahlman created in his kitchen and and really kind of professionalized it and made it like this, this big thing that everybody at all the poison control centers around the country could contribute to um, and making it this growing body of knowledge. And it also became something of a magnet for grants and funding and all that because everyone recognizes you know, this this role of collecting data for toxicology is really important. And that's where a lot of the funding, especially any federal funding that a, um, Poison Control Center might get, is kind of aimed toward.
0: Yeah, and they were still at the time using literal carbon paper to create multiple <laughs> copies of these things. I think mm-hmm. in 74, uh, there was a commercial toxicology data set put together, uh, finally, kind of in earnest, called Poison Dex.
1: I love it.
0: It's pretty good, Um, still in use today. But it's it it was funny reading all this stuff. It's like I don't know if there's ever been an institution that was more crying out for the internet to be born. Yeah, as far as just as we'll see with consolidation and efficiencies and sharing of information. I mean, the internet changed every everything. uh, Mm -hmm. You know, as far as this stuff goes, for the better. But um, poison control centers really like when you're mailing uh pamphlets around the country and you're putting things together with carbon paper and index cards and yeah even microfiche, it's like all they needed was the internet to really make it a robust system.
1: Yeah. And they they did I think they added by hand the internet? Fifty fifty <laughs> right. Like fifty million incidents were eventually added
0: little a, by little. Yeah, it's a lot of hard work
1: to what became known as the National Poison Data System the NPDS and that's still in in uh in use today. So there's a ton of information like every time you call poison control and they start a case that the details of that case end up being added to the the poison data system. Um and so that database is growing, you know, every day.
0: Should we take that second break? I think so. All right, let's take another break and we'll Flash forward to the wild 70s and 80s and see what was going on in the poison control centers.
1: Okay, Chuck. It's the seventies. Everybody at the uh, poison control centers are taking pills themselves. Sometimes have to call in for help. Um, The eighties weren't much better, and there's some other stuff going on.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So in the seventies, there, um, with the advent of more people abusing pills, that became a larger focus of poison control centers Mm -hmm. and the toxicology. Uh, I think in 74 was when the prescription pill bottles, and I think we talked about this in the, uh, was it in the Tylenol? No, because that was over the counter. Yeah, uh, Prescription pills were, were in 1974 as far as childproofing. And that really made a, a marked difference over the next couple of decades in kids being poisoned by uh, by drugs.
1: Yeah, between 74 and 96, the incidence of kids dying from prescription pill Uh, poisonings decreased by 45 percent. So that was a really good federal law. And what's interesting is because of that law and because of these information campaigns that were drummed up to kind of like not just let parents know about, you know, the hazards of, of dangerous chemicals, but also let kids know, too, poisonings of children actually declined so dramatically that there was a vacuum left open, basically free time, that toxicologists and poison centers had to start investigating and better understanding adult poisoning incidents right. as well. So there yeah. was kind of a shift in in the 70s and 80s in that sense.
0: Yeah, and then in the 60s another one of my favorite things in pop culture history happened is when they decided that you know, we're using the skull and crossbones to indicate something is poisonous and it turns out children love pirates. <laughs> so that's probably sending a mixed message so we need to we need to do something about this so they mounted uh in Pittsburgh what's called the Mr. Yuck uh YUK campaign and it was to get a new logo basically that kids would not want to go drink uh the product like because they thought it was pirates juice or whatever pirates rum mm-hmm. and uh they they did a little thing where they got all these different uh logos and designs created showed them to a bunch of kids and said which ones do you least like? Which one of these designs is yuck to you? And they chose a picture of Martin Screlly's face.
1: <laughs> it was amazing. Wow, that was quite a build-up.
0: I wish I could read out all the different faces I have on this page before I settled on Martin Screlly.
1: Who, who else you got? Give us a couple.
0: I don't really think I can because I took them off for reasons. Oh, I see. Because you can't go after someone hard unless it's a guy like that. You know?
1: Yeah, I got you. Sure, sure.
0: Okay. Well, I'll, I'll well, send them to you offline. Later. I work, okay, I yeah, thanks.
1: Because <laughs> I, I got to know. Forget about everybody else. I just need to know.
0: Uh, no, it was actually uh, what they called it was Mr. Yuck, and it was the what you see now a lot of times is that sort of sick green um, emoji face that's really mm-hmm. upset. It looks like it's kind of pukey. And kids were like, Ew, I don't like that face. So they said, well, I, I guess that's what we'll start using then.
1: They said, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that well, that was pretty successful too. Um, and then one of the other things that really kind of happened during this time, uh, because I guess poison control centers were a bit of a victim of their own success, um, there was uh, this push for consolidation. Um, there was just so many poison control centers. And now they were working, thanks to the National Poison uh, Data System, they were, like, working in tandem with one another. Like, they they were sharing information and knowledge and that kind of stuff. But there were just too many of them. There was an unnecessary need, or an unnecessary number. And then even more inefficiently, despite the fact that there were 650 almost poison control yeah. centers in the United States, only about half of the American population was covered by a poison control center. Like if you were poisoned in Topeka, say, you had to drive to Kansas City and use the phone to call a poison control center. I made that up, but I bet it's pretty close to accurate. And if those cities aren't correct, the general sentiment is, okay, everybody, so just (laughs) lay off.
0: Uh, And even the most robust poison control centers were getting like maybe 10 calls a day. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's just really inefficient. Like you said, they were sharing information, that was good, but it was ironically sort of the lack of budgeting that led them to start it wasn't like they said, Hey, let's just start shrinking our the number of these centers. Right. They were kind of forced to, and then the writing was on the wall, like there is a, a much more efficient way to do this because we're we're talking about call centers, you know?
1: Yeah. Is there anything that Ronald Reagan couldn't do, Chuck? <laughs> He never won an Academy Award. I believe it. Have you seen any of his movies?
0: <laughs> I haven't, actually.
1: Oh, the, he was not a great actor. Really? No. They they weren't good, particularly. So Yeah,
0: I haven't seen any of those old westerns.
1: So, but the upshot of it, um, well, he was also in, like, Hellcats of the Navy. That's where he met Nancy, and that was a World War II picture.
0: Okay. Well, I didn't see that one either.
1: I didn't either. I've seen... Bits of it. How about that? You don't have to see a whole Ronald Reagan movie to know <laughs> that he wasn't a great actor. But the upshot of it was um, that, uh, that there were fewer poison control centers and that actually panned out to be a good thing. Yes. What was surprising to me was despite the fact that automated switching um, was introduced in the 70s or the 80s, at t invented in the 70s, introduced in the 80s. It wasn't until 2001 or 2002 that there is a single national 800 number for poison control centers in the U.S. We
0: should say that but, number.
1: Uh, I agree. Uh, we should. What it's if we 800- just didn't even mention it? <laughs> <laughs> that would be totally <laughs> us. I actually wrote it down yeah, on the front page <laughs> to make sure. Yeah. It's 800 222 1222.
0: That's 1 800. Like that. You yeah. got to do it like a TV commercial. Okay, do it. That's one eight hundred two 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 one two two two. Again, one
1: eight hundred two 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 one two two two.
0: That's we're making a joke, but that's what you're supposed to do. You know, three times. You got to do it. Uh, I think by two thousand two, that number had shrunk to sixty four PCCs in the U.S. And that's when that that uh, toll-free number was introduced. Or I'm sorry, it was in 2001, I think, that was introduced. Mm-hmm. And by that time, uh, it it went from 650 servicing half the United States to 64 servicing all of the United States.
1: Yeah, I think it's down to 55 now. It's a lean, mean efficiency machine. Yeah, thank you, All Internet. thanks to that national number. And so there's 55... That doesn't mean there's one in every state and five states have two. There's actually some states that don't have any. Like I yeah. was saying, there's a shared regional poison control center between Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Um, but they, so there's some states that don't have their own, but everybody is served because they can call that number. It gets routed to either your closest poison control center or a poison control center whose line isn't busy right then. Um, because you're, you know, what you're ingesting in, um, you know, San Diego is probably the same product yeah. that you would be ingesting in, you know, Burlington, Vermont. So, it it it, it doesn't really matter who you talk to. They're right. going to also be working from the same data set, the National Poison Data System. So, whoever can get to the phone, um, you're going to be talking to somebody who is either a doctor, um, most likely a nurse, or there are specialists, a poison control specialist, um, who's basically an information person. They're not a they're not a healthcare provider, but they work under the auspices of, say, like a nurse or a doctor at the poison control center, and they are um certified and uh ongoing educated uh in toxicology. So they know what they're talking about.
0: Yeah. So you you could go work for a poison control center. If you wanted to and not go to medical school or get medical training, yeah. you, you would just get on-the-job training. I think there's a lot of pharmacists, too, mm-hmm. that take these calls. Um, and as efficiently as they run, it is – maybe this is why uh, – they are not – like the day-to-day ops are still not federally funded. No, um, They do get some federal funding, like through the CDC for data collection. and mm-hmm. uh, But a lot of it comes through uh, affiliated institutions, local health departments – um, like I said, a little from the CDC, and I think the uh, there was a there was another act, the Poison Control Center Enhancement and Awareness Act, provided. Uh, I think they provided the funds for the number, but they were yeah. still like, hey, you want to keep the lights on and keep it staffed? You're not getting federally funded, which is no it's interesting. Crazy. I mean, it's working though, so I guess maybe there's something to be said for getting the federal government out of this situation.
1: Sure, but at the same time, it makes you wonder, like, what they could be doing if they weren't chronically underfunded. Like, if they didn't have to have bake sales or do contract poisonings for local mobs or um, (laughs) ask for donations. Like, that that stat I got about $1 being invested and turning into $13 saved, that was from a donation page for a poison control center. I mean, come on. Like, those things should be— you know, they don't have to be, like, bloated or anything like that, but they shouldn't be underfunded. That's just dumb.
0: Yeah, and I think, just so people don't misunderstand, I wasn't saying, like, good, the federal government, you know, funds too many things. But the fact that they are a lean, mean poison control machine, mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me that the federal government is involved. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, you're like, watch, everyone, as I turn into a fiscal conservative <laughs> before your very eyes. Poof. Um, <laughs> All right, what what just happened? <laughs> I don't know. Did you convert back?
0: No, I'm good. Whew, okay, that was, good. that was close.
1: Wow. so um,
0: all right, what happens? So, you call a poison control center, right? You're going to get that call answered, like you mentioned earlier. Not necessarily by the one in Atlanta. Um, if they're busy, they may route you to just a different one. They'll be very friendly. They'll keep you calm.
1: Yeah, that's the impression I have. I and didn't actually call one because no. <laughs> I didn't want. To, I was scared to, but apparently you can just to get information if you want.
0: As well sure. So. Uh, the first thing they're going to do though is is route your call. Like if you're uh, if you, if you just mistakenly called the number because it's the first one you could think about after a car accident. Mm. They would say – they would route you to 911 and say – They'd be you know. like, boy, you must have hit your head or something. That was <laughs> right. dumb. You, you
1: remembered 800-222-1222 <laughs> over
0: 911. Are you kidding me? Crazy things have happened.
1: And also, that's another thing, too. You can call 911, and they can actually route you to the Poison Control Center as well. Yeah, it goes both ways. But I saw frequently they get calls from people who are suffering or think they're suffering, like, food poisoning. Mm -hmm. They don't handle that kind of thing, but they will make sure that you get to somebody who does.
0: Right. So they're going to talk you through that to begin with, reroute you if they need to. They're going to start immediately providing uh, treatment advice, like, if it's a real emergency – they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, kind of tell you what to do in the immediate like minutes that you're on the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, consult with anyone else they need to, and if you do need emergency care, uh, and we'll go over the stats here in a second of how many actually do, which is not as many as you would think, mm-hmm. they will call the paramedics. They will call ahead to the local ER. They're gonna say, "Hey, you got someone coming in. His name is Josh Clark. He drank Pine Sol. <laughs> he thought it was apple juice." And they'll say, "Josh Clark, the podcaster."
1: Like, yeah. yeah, he's pretty dumb, <laughs> apparently.
0: <laughs> And they will arrange kind of for all that ahead of time. They might even order tests in the hospital. Maybe a pizza. Maybe a pizza or some other treatment. And they will even monitor and follow up on cases. Yeah, that thought it was amazing. Yeah, yeah,
1: they they keep and even if you're, you know, if you're going to the hospital, they might um they might coordinate you being transferred to a specialized center. Mm-hmm. Um like they are really like I was saying hands on. And then even if you stay at home, if they're like, "Okay, this is good. You're you're fine." Like uh okay, this is fine. You're overwhelmed by oven cleaner fumes or something like that. Just, you know, open the windows, go outside. You you know, it'll take a few minutes, but you're probably going to be okay. I'm going to stay on the phone with you, whatever. After you get off the phone, they'll probably call you back in a half hour, an hour, something like that to check on you to make sure you're still doing okay. Like, I love poison control specialists. I think they're just the bomb.
0: You know what? Now I'm remembering we did call poison control one time when my daughter was a baby. I totally forgot about this. I don't even remember what it was. It turned out to be nothing. That's good. And it it wasn't, I mean, she didn't drink anything or get poisoned, but we thought something might have happened. So you call. And I remember now this triggered it because I remember them following up almost in a uh, child welfare sort of capacity. It felt like, Mm. like, did you do something? I remember what? getting grilled a little bit or Emily getting grilled and us being like, man, poison control is no joke.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh I'll have to ask her tonight when she gets home. But I, I definitely remember now that there was just I remember the follow-up part of it. Wow. And the fact huh. that my daughter lived. I remember that part.
1: Yeah, that, that part too. <laughs> <laughs> so... um if you do call and you you know they walk you through the case and everything like like we were saying they'll they'll follow up and all of that stuff gets logged into the national poison database.
0: Yeah, gotta have that database. And
1: every eight minutes across all those fifty five poison control centers, all of their new information gets uploaded to the CDC, wow. where there's a team of toxicologists to- who are engaged in toxo surveillance, who scan all this stuff to mm-hmm. look for signs of, say, an outbreak of disease, an outbreak of poisonings, an outbreak of a new drug of abuse Mm -hmm. that people are suddenly um, using. And that is is one of those big unsung functions of poison control centers is they can be the group who notices something that's happening all over the country to where, you know, to the individual ERs, it's just one person coming in. But to these poison control centers, they are, you know, there's 50 people suddenly around the country who are dropping dead from heroin. Well, that's not supposed to happen. What's going on with the heroin? There was actually a case in 96, I think, where poison control centers noticed that, that people were showing up to ERs in the Northeast. From heroin and they figured out that somebody had added scopolamine to heroin and that people were having really bad reactions to it. And it was the poison control centers who noticed that. And those are what are called sentinel events, which is um a, a there's a signal. There's a mm-hmm. there's a, a basically the, exactly that something is afoot and um they can help advise on how to treat it. They can contact the CDC. There's a bunch of stuff they can do. So they're like the first line of defense in monitoring that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, they've also, in the last couple of decades, been more involved with uh, helping to tackle environmental toxic exposure. Mm-hmm. So, like, after the nine eleven attacks, obviously, uh, when there was, you know, so much, like, bad stuff that first responders were breathing in, um, the anthrax attacks that happened uh, later on that year, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that they're more and more involved in. So they're really more and more on the front lines of sort of – Tackling bigger things than my podcast host partner drank some pine sol, although that's up there. <laughs> it tasted so bad too, but man, it looked like it was going to be some apple juice. Should we wind it out with some stats?
1: Yeah, let's. Although there's one other thing I want to say. This, you know, we've been touting its its uh, its virtues and for for good reason, but it's not a perfect system, uh, and that was evidenced in I think 2012. 2016, I cannot remember, but there was, um, they kind of famously, poison centers missed the um, the rash of Tide Pod poisonings, that little kids were like, this thing looks delicious, let oh. me eat this. Um, and that, that there were poisonings as a result, but there was no uh, code that could be entered in the National Poison Data System. So, the poison center's kind of knew what was going on but they weren't really able to share this information and basically create this you know notice that this was a sentinel event because of basically a clerical problem a clerical issue and i think they've since solved it but um you know it's still an evolving ongoing process hammering out how to how to do this but i think we were we were right in generally you know Trumpeting how great sure. this, this system is. Yeah,
0: of course. Yeah. Um statistically, a couple of years ago in 2019, 43% of all the calls and uh were kids, six and under. Uh forty-two percent were adults. Uh, so I guess that leaves what, eighty-five, fifteen percent between six Very and immature. eighteen. <laughs> yeah. Uh if you were under six, most of the poisonings uh were one and two year olds. Uh, more boys are poisoned than girls. Um if you're Which 13 is, and under, but more girls yeah. than boys if you're older than 13.
1: Which is sad because it indicates the the spike in self-harm that poison yeah. control centers see as kids girls. enter the teenage years. And it is largely girls. It's not exactly like girls just leaving boys in the dust, but they're definitely in the majority um, or they're in the lead, I guess, when it comes to self-harm as far as poison control statistics go. But, um, that's also seen in the uh the the unintentional poisonings like ninety nine point two percent of kids six and under um their poisonings are unintentional, sure adults sixty percent are unintentional with teenagers only thirty three percent of the poison calls that come wow. in are unintentional the rest are in, in, are considered either self harm or it's like a, a drug overdose, which They're not setting out to overdose on drugs, but it's still considered intentional in the fact that they intentionally injected themselves or snorted that thing or, you know, whatever else you do with drugs.
0: Right. Uh, In 2019, I think a little more than 76 percent total were accidental. Um, 18 percent total were almost 19 percent total were intentional. Mm-hmm. And I think 68,000 calls that year were for animals. We did mention that animals, you know, they you still want to call your vet, but if your animal ingested a toxic poison from your house, you can call a poison control center to get kind of quick information.
1: And then I think I said earlier, Chuck, that, like, you can just call and ask them questions, and they're totally cool with yeah. that. Yeah. Like there's a decent number of uh, calls that come in every year from people saying like, hey, I want to take the St. John's wort, but my doctor prescribed me this, um, you know, this heart medicine. Right. Is that, is that going to go okay with do that? Party? <laughs> those would be right. Those would be the people that you would call, and they, they will give you the info
0: that you need. And if you're looking uh, around your house and wondering what's going to do it, uh, the top culprits for accidental uh, poisoning – At 11%, 11 11.5% were cosmetics and personal Mm -hmm. care products. Imagine that.
1: Well, they're so frequently left in, you know, easy to grasp places. They also
0: smell good. They taste good. 1% more than household cleaners. And I think at 9%, you've got pain relief medications. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I also saw
1: algae blooms, toxic mushrooms, button batteries. Those are also problematic too.
0: Uh, I think, though, 66% of all cases are resolved at home. At least they were in 2019. So that is, yeah. you know, that's a pretty decent majority. What's that number again, Chuck? one eight hundred two 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 one two two two. 222 1222
1: Yeah, you can also go to poisonhelp.org. That's the Poison Control Center's website. And you can actually report online, too. So Do it. There you go. Um, only if you have a poisoning. Or a good question, I guess, too. Yeah. Um, but since we said a good question, of course,
0: everybody, that means it's
1: time for a Listener Mail.
0: Uh, I'm going to call this a couple of quick corrections. This is two for your money. Okay. Uh, hey, guys. Dr. John Verhoven, my physical metallurgy professor. I know this We're, one. Yeah. Uh, was from the Superior Iowa State, not University of Iowa. I'm sorry. Goof that one up. Uh, We have a proud metallurgy tradition, including the purest uranium used in the original Manhattan Project experiment produced by Dr. Harvey Wilhelm. Go Cyclones! And that's from Bryn Sutton.
1: Sorry about that, Bryn, and all of these cyclones out there. I apologize.
0: Uh, And then, this is another one. This is from Dr. Great Art. Uh, a.k.a. Dr. Mark Staff Brandel a docent and associate professor emeritus in Switzerland says there was much to compliment about the art mystery show but I have one small complaint Uh, Caravaggio's signature in the Malta uh, altarpiece the F is very well known and not a mystery there are thousands of paintings by hundreds of artists with this it is uh, indeed it is certainly an abbreviation for Fesset uh, the best translation would be "was made by uh, this email message." E.g. is F Mark Staff Brandle Wink, wink. So uh, he says that was really not a mystery, and that was a common thing. So we did not know that.
1: Uh, well, thank you, Doctor Great Art, and also thank you, Bryn, for that. And also, I think I said that the KFC Yum Center was in
0: Lexington when it's in Oh, yeah. oh boy! You don't confuse those two. That's it's very bad.
1: No, I'm just going to go ahead and say I've been secretly trolling everybody. I'm well aware of all of these uh, Very big mistakes. rivalry there. Right. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. I'm so sorry. I probably won't be back after this. Um, so I guess in the meantime, if you want to send us an email, send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from radio visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.